Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. With no further ado, let's welcome tonight's guest moderator and author, Ronnie Barnett and Rob Zabrecki. I thought Drag Queen story time was today. Thanks for setting me up with that joke. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hi, Stace. Channing. All right. Thank you. I want to actually need these. I prefer to work off the stand. Nothing? That's okay. Let it build. It's not about me. It's about Rob today. He's got a book, Strange Cures. It's finally out. I've been friends with Rob for a long time, so. Rob, you've been working on this thing for 10 years? Uh, 13 to be exact. 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. There's email drafts that I would, I had this little word document going and I just send it to myself and they go back. Yeah. 13, 13 years, long time in the, in the works. Yep. Takes a long time to, uh, I remember you sending me chapters, which look the same. I think it's in the book. Yeah. I was thinking about that and I wonder how, how close it was. Um, cause something clicked about three years ago where I started putting the chapters kind of in scene and there's a lot more dialogue and a lot more riding along with the, the author as opposed to like a, a Wikipedia entry, which is what it was for the longest time. It was just this big, long kind of fact, 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 fact. And it didn't have a lot of, uh, I would say color, you know, that, that came a little bit later. Yeah. Now that it's like done and it's been out and you've done a few of these events, like you have any regrets on what didn't make it in the book? Hell no. No. <laughs> Everything that I kept out was totally intentional because, um, you know, at, at some point I had to pick what stays, what goes. And I was pretty um, adamant about, like, if I, don't, if I don't put this thing in, then this really isn't my story. And I don't want to put it in. I don't really want to have to describe and explain this to people. But it was integral uh, to add the, the pain in, along with the joy. Yeah, and there's definitely both in this book. If you guys haven't read it, uh, Rob, you know, usually in autobiographies, I will skip the childhood because I, I really find it dull that people went to school and whatever. But Rob, by age 12, Rob's been shot. I'll repeat that. Rob has been shot. I think he's still got the bullet in his arm, by the way. It came out two years ago. I had the operation. It finally came out. Is that? Did you do that? Myself? No, I went to a no. professional. <laughs> Trained I'll be, professional. I bet you tried to do it yourself at age 11. <laughs> uh, I dug around. I mean, I, the fun thing was, you know, you got a bullet in your arm. First of all, it's a pretty, after the, the psychic pain kind of goes away, you get to say to your friends at the airport, hey, when we go through the, the scanner, if they wave the wand on my arm, it sets off the the alarm, watch. And you do it, and they're like, oh man, that's amazing. And then they stop, like, what's going on? What do you got in there? Because I think you're like carrying a gun or something. Of course, it's just, you explain to them that you, you know, were shot by your uncle, and they go, oh, of course. <laughs> go on through, next. So, yeah. This is LA. Yeah. It's LA. Yeah. yeah. But I went to Chicago once, and that's when it happened. Ah. So you learned the hard way. Yeah. Your first time, yeah. School of Hard Knocks, right here from Burbank. Yeah, also a year later, Rob is the uh, front page of a newspaper in Scotland, which uh, I think is the first strange cure. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say uh, having my name in the paper because I had this this terrible case of warts that um, was... It's funny now. ...diminished uh, through an old Scottish mem uh, remedy of, of, you know, plunging your hands in, in cow poop every day for a fortnight, two weeks, um, that... You're, yeah, Fortnite. Yeah, write that down. I know you don't hear it much. Exactly. You see, and so uh, that was a big deal to to see. Like, wow, I'm 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 in the paper. I'm I'm important for being a fool and believing this that this remedy would work. But actually, because it did, who's the fool? 
Really? And who, someone told you to do this? Uh, yeah, a friend of my, my mother's, uh, my aunt, my, my aunt Nan actually said, because she saw these, I had these, this terrible case of warts, or 47 warts just covering my hands, and we got them burned off, and uh, they kept coming back, and it's really embarrassing to be a little kid and have these warts and try to, you know, trying to fit in on the playground in Burbank up there, and it's hot, and you're right in the middle of the Southern California, you know, hot Brady Bunch era, you know, 73, 74, 75. And uh, that didn't really jive with all that. So it, made, it, it put me aside immediately from, from the other kids. Um, you know, I felt like an outsider in that way. But because this remedy was, was, uh, was, was a cure, it was a strange cure, and it did work, it changed everything. Right. Yeah, it changed my life completely. But wow. I'd say it was my second strange cure because the first one was you get shot by your uncle and you, the cure is you learn that these adult people are not to be trusted. <laughs> so no, you look at. The, I don't know who this guy is who you're with, but yeah, you know we we, we get older and we look older, but not we don't necessarily have always the uh, the most noble characteristics as we. And you worshipped your uncle, right? I did. I wanted to be just like him. I want you know. I I I thought he had an interesting job because he worked for the FBI, you know, and and he was certainly someone that I deified, and uh, thought he had the most exciting job. It was like having Beretta or Columbo. <laughs> you know, staying at your house. So who didn't want that? My dad was a carpenter. My mom worked for the for the phone company, and th that was like barely interesting at all. That's a, that's a cool thing about this book is there's a lot of early Burbank. Rob grew up in Burbank. You still live around Burbank. I went back. I can't believe it. Uh, after all these years, just uh, we decided Tommy, my wife, and I decided to uh, to truck back and try to get away from hipsters. <laughs> There's no escape. There's no escape. They're coming <laughs> to the valley. I see them. I see them there. But I love, I love all the story. You know, there's like, Rob worked at Sizzler. And uh, one, thing, one, thing I, one thing I thought was really cool is him and his friends used to sneak into Universal Studios, uh, the lot, which you would not be able to do now. No way. I mean, that, that was definitely the bonus. Uh, you're 14, 15, growing up in the valley. House parties get broken up. And if you were in the know, in, a, in, the, in the cool kids sect, you piled into your friend's Volkswagens and you drove over Coenga Pass, over Barham, made a right, and that parking lot was dead. There was nothing going on up there. And there's this big fence, this big long fence, and underneath it, there's a hole. And you climb under the hole and you, t you take about 30 steps down, you make a left, and you're on the porch of Norman Bates' home. Wow, wow. And you are free, and you have hours until sunlight, and you're with your best friends, and you have a 12-pack and a pack of cigarettes, and you're just like, what are we going to do? What movie scene shall we recreate? Shall we go to Jaws? Shall we go to New York? There's like New York over here in Little Italy, and there's a little Mexican sort of ranchero scene over here. So it was amazing um, in that we went there so many times because it was free, it was late, and there was no curfew to it. It was just like, it, it was kind of, I won't say anarchy, really, but it was, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, no security. We play, uh, well, there was, actually. So we'd play hang-go-seek. So the deal was we'd, we'd usually kind of get drunk and, and play hang-go-seek. That was the, the basic format. And then, like, one time, somebody broke a window at the, at the Walton's house, you know, <laughs> which is right next door to 1313 Mockingbird Lane, which is next to... Uh, leave it to Beaver houses. They're all just jammed in there. It's it's pretty incredible when you see it. Uh, you see pictures of it. But at night, and it's not lit up. It's got it's very eerie. You know, it's a very it was a very eerie time to be doing that. But there was security, and the security was this. It was a golf cart, and there was these two very dull lights, and the thing moved like a tortoise. And it was a, you know what we would imagine was a probably a you know. A, older, you know, drunk security guard who didn't really care about his job too much. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. So who's he going to call? And we're, you know, these kind of ample, like, you know, swift kids who can run like hell and, and always beat him, you know. Right. We'd see the thing like, uh-oh, time to go. <laughs> and then it was all we just like, you know, leave him in the dust. Wow. But it was great. And it was some, I definitely have some of my most memorable uh, moments of, my teenage years were probably spent like, in, during during like say 11 p.m. to th to 3 a.m. up there. I mean, I took girls up there. 
Jaws set was like, hey, I, I got this place. <laughs> you know, it was like kind of like I had I had a I had an in, I had a I had an inside like I had I had the scoop to this this cool place. The Jaws place was the uh, good place to make out with girls, apparently. And I know, I know it's Hollywood, and we know it's just a facade, the psycho house, but I refuse to believe that the whole house isn't there. I have bad news for you. It's not. Uh, I, hate to, I hate to break that down, but like, and every time you go there, and you go, and you have to look inside, yeah. because you've seen the movie, right? You've seen all these movies, and all these TV shows, and you have to just go in there and go, man, this is just, these are just a bunch of two-by-fours and a dusty old, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, architectural thing that's just being held up by boards that one match this thing would just go up in a second yeah <laughs> did people graffiti behind the uh no nope. does it say rob zabrecki back there no it doesn't but the hollywood sign was where i would say used to was was covered raise your hand if you went to the hollywood sign late 70s early 80s you used to be able to chanting remember so you'd walk you could walk right down to the back of that thing and it was covered covered in graffiti and it was great and yeah, my, I, I'm sure I threw my initials in there. And that was anarchy. People just running around aimlessly, doing God knows what. And that was another time where you're up there and you're like, this is a cool time to be alive. Wow. You know? And then I went back there as a teenager. I remember being like 19 and going, hey, and telling some friends, hey, let's go to the Hollywood sign. And we got like 100 yards from the thing. And, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a, a cop approaches me with a billy club and it, like slamming on the ribs. And I rolled down the hill like good 10 feet, I have no idea where this guy came from. But suddenly there was like, there was order and there was, it was that area was, was governed and protected. And, yeah, and that was like 88, probably. So You're lucky to be alive, Rob. Shot, rolling down the hill. Yeah, I know. Life's pretty tame now, though. So <laughs> I finished the book. I'm here. So we'll move out of Hollywood. Punk rock. Yeah. What, how'd you discover punk rock? So, yeah, in 1980, I... Um, I was in Scotland getting my warts, you know, kind of taken care of. And uh, <laughs> there were these kids walking through the streets of Patna, this small town in Scotland. And they looked like young members of the Sex Pistols and The Clash. And I kind of knew that look a little bit from like Cream Magazine and, you know, looking at music magazines, obsessed with music. But like, say, I'm embarrassed to say like Van Halen and Kiss and, well, not Kiss so much. But yeah, I mean, I love, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm still proud of Kiss. Kiss is st uh, still, I mean, oh, sorry. I know, I know. Still proud Thanks for working Kiss into this. Okay, hold on, hold on. Kansas, Sticks, boo. Boston, boo. And my brother's like, this is the future of rock. And, I, and at one day, I was like, no, it's not. Because I had, I had like the good fortune of seeing those kids and going, wow, these kids are so interesting. They look, they look like aliens, and they were so colorful and fascinating. And then I came back to uh, L.A., and I became a popular seventh grader. My warts vanished, and I discovered Rodney on the Rock. And like, you can raise your hand if he had a big impact on your life. I know he, John, just raise your hand. Don't be too cool. <laughs> John Roker's always too cool. You're not that cool, John. So thank you. Uh, but that, that music uh, changed my perspective on life, my outcome of, of who I became as a, as a person. Um, you know, I was 12. I saw Dead Kennedys and Flipper play at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and that was walking into this arena where teenagers are throwing themselves often on the stage in 1981. I'm 12, so I'm, you know, still, you know, a long way away from smoking my first cigarette or having my first drink or any relationships with girls. I was just a little kid, basically. Mm -hmm. But there I was. I had my homemade black flag shirt on. I was, I loved every word of every song. I had no idea what any of it meant, right. especially with some of that music that was political. Mm -hmm. um, some of it was more understandable, like... Um, Maybe Adolescence was what some of those records were uh, put out by Lisa Fancher and Frontier were I definitely connected with. Shout out to Frontier Records uh, for providing the soundtrack for a lot of my you know youthful years. But some of that music was really identifiable. Uh, Black Flag, Nervous Breakdown, all those very simple messages. But then some of it was like, even The Clash was like, well, I don't know what they're talking about. God Save the Queen. I'm like, ah, I don't know. But I like it. I like the melody, and I like the style of it. So anyway, that all, that all really changed my perspective, and I was able to kind of put the Sticks and Kansas records away to the back of the collections. But now you like them again, though, right? Nope. Oh. Nope. Niet. I'm glad you brought up cigarettes, because uh, you know what pops up in this book a lot? Is you smoking cloves. Yeah. Which I'd forgotten about clove cigarettes. How can you forget? <laughs> don't, that, don't your lungs bleed? You know what? That's what I always I, heard. So I had to quit smoking uh, a few years ago. I didn't have to. I wanted to, and thankfully so. But I, um, 
when I quit smoking, I went and bought clove oil at the Psychic Eye Bookshop, <laughs> and I'll sometimes just load that stuff on my wrist, and I just, I just, and I'll do. Sometimes I do a performance. This is a little secret. I shouldn't even be telling you this, but sometimes I just load and I just load it up there in my nose, like, this, and then I go on stage, and I'm sm like, it's such. I'm I'm transported to 1982, and I'm just looking at all these people, and I smell, and it's such a strong smell that I, and I don't do it to get. It's not to get high. It's I'm a, I'm an incredibly nostalgic person, and and that which is the reason that I spent so much time working on a memoir, and my close friends all know that I will go to places to look at things because this happened here, mm -hmm. um, you know, Matt and I. Took a field trip to Cielo Drive not long ago. Um, the, the trips to Universal, and I still like if something um, fascinates me, I will go there just to look. And I and I don't care if they've, you know, I do care. But if if there's a Starbucks that was where there was once something, there's a photo, I'll just stand there and kind of marvel at like, okay, what did it feel like when you know this was in its heyday or blank or you know whatever. There's a picture of me and Rob in Hermosa Beach, laying on the sidewalk by the worm. Graffiti on the sidewalk, which is still there, and no one's going to care about that. Maybe Keith might get that a little. Yeah, bit. Keith gets it. Keith. Uh, outside of the Comedy Magic Club, uh, Chuck Dukowski's band from uh, from Black Flag is other prog rock band, I guess. Right? Was that the first? Maybe. Or no, am I am I kind of getting that right, Keith? Worm. Okay. <laughs> All right. Then just nod. I, I yeah. Probably. Anyway, worm. We yeah, didn't so expect Rodney, to talk about worm. Yeah, we, we, are, we are, we're going down a rabbit hole. No one's. All right, gonna, all right. Yeah, we're losing them. We're gonna so far, okay. losing them. So you become a musician. How does that happen? Uh, I became a musician because I love music, and one day I had the conceit that I could play music instead of just listen to it. So the bass had four strings, and the Batman riff was pretty easy to learn. <laughs> I had some friends in in tenth grade that were just picking up drums and and guitar, mm -hmm. so we quickly formed a group called the Castaways and we're playing, I mean the simplest songs you could imagine: Batman, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, there was Bell Lugosi's Dead from Bauhaus, yeah, the easiest bass line known to man. <laughs> Stuff like that, where it's just like, it wasn't, like the music didn't have to be good, it was just what's easy. And it was always like what we'd hear, oh, I could, maybe we could play that. And so anyway, that that sort of set me. Uh, on my on my path, and then about five six years later, I, I formed my band um, Possum Dixon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possum Dixon. How long now? I know you came up in the Jabberjaw scene and all that. Um, yeah. But you signed to a major label. Yep, was signed by my friend Chuck Reed, who's right here in the house tonight. He's uh, came out. Thank you, Chuck, for that signing back in '93. Uh, the man yeah. who lost his job over that signing. Exactly. No, I don't know. I'm pretty sure he did. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we worked pretty hard. I mean, we were kicking around what was the nascent Silver Lake uh, scene that, that was kind of, you know, uh, S.A. Griffin's here tonight, great poet, Channing Hansen's right there. These guys were the regulars right down the street here at the Onyx sequel where you could go in, at, on some off night and there would be Channing reading poetry, S.A. doing poetry, you know, Beck performing what would have been a couple years before, like, say, Loser or something like that. So he hadn't quite hit the, the rap stuff yet. It was more uh, anti-folk, I guess, is what that was, that world. Um, and then we have this band Possum Dixon, which early on was a, a hodgepodge of, like, more kind of, I would say, more art-rocky before we became a little more structured. But it was like, we love the B-52s and um, Perubu and Violent Femmes and Velvet Underground and... Um, Iggy Pop's later records, you know, the more kind of angular, new wavy stuff. Right. Um, and so that really was a, had a huge impact on me. Um, and actually, I'm, uh, while we're at it, I would say Matt Devine, who's sitting right there, I thought I knew a lot about music. And, and then one, one Christmas, I'm like 20, 21, Matt, Matt gives me two records. He goes, here, I think you're going to like these. And one of them was uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, uh, Voidoids Blank Generation, which was a major game changer. And then the other one was Television's Marquee Moon. Do you remember those? Yep. Merry Christmas. Thank you. I'll never forget <laughs> you. I mean, yeah. So those, those two records were massively kind of like they just changed the whole way I looked at music and kind of wanted to write it and perform it and everything. So it's really fun. It was a really fun time to be in music because there was no stakes, you know, like you could, we would do shows, a lot of shows with, with Beck, and there were bands like Glue that were kicking around, they were a fantastic band, uh, uh, Glue, a four-piece, um, 
and they were magnetic and very power pop charged. All the bands were very different, but there was a little circuit going on, and it was the Onyx, it was uh, definitely Jabberjaw, uh, the Pick Me Up over here, Al's Bar, Raji's, and that's where I believe I first probably saw you and your band, The Muffs, that just formed right around 89, 90, right? Uh, we formed in late 90, so we were a little after Possum Dixon, but uh, yeah, we so both... Late. Wow, you missed it. We both got signed in the... Yeah, I missed, I missed, we missed the Silver Lake scene, but uh, we Did were you? able to get on board in the major label post-Nirvana wave of uh, big money. Yeah, and if you if you're yeah, just for those of you that don't, just to fill in the blanks there, Nirvana's Nevermind changed everything for the music industry. Um, it killed hair metal, thankfully, um, <laughs> and it just opened up the doors for for all these big record companies to go. Oh, we're gonna, you know, oh the Butthole Surfers are we're gonna make a pop record for them, or we're gonna just <laughs> throw them a hundred thousand sure. dollars to make a record or whatever. So it's kind of cool to be in this world where like oh bands are actually getting signed and we'd put on a bunch of seven inches and i put on some like little poetry booklets and stuff and was definitely had had found my place in the world in the music community which is something that i kind of gave up my college years for you know i i was out of high school and i'm like well my 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 parents would love it if i'd be a teacher that would have been a huge accomplishment um but i helped open jabberjaw with gary and michelle and therefore, that sent me into booking bands and booking art shows and having playing in bands, you know, uh, and just being like, that was a 24-7 thing. I was totally into that. And meanwhile, seeing iconic people uh, from L.A.'s past was incredible when someone like, you know, Don Bowles from the Germs would come in and, you'd, and serving him coffee. And I'm like, who needs to go to college? This is incredible. Right. You know, I was like, I was in the movie at that point. And, and so, which is something I would have never admitted at the time, but now I'm, I'm old enough to go, I don't know, what do I care now? I'm, I'm looking back on it and it's just, it is what it is. But like, I had ingratiated myself into that world and it felt really good. And I felt like I, I earned my spot in the, in the sandbox of uh, whatever under LA underground culture. Right, and then you get you get signed by a major label, and you're spending like 200 grand to make a record, and uh, you think uh, that's gonna, you think it grows on trees and it's gonna last forever. And uh, well, I mean, I, I would say for us, it was like, well, this is great. Who kind, we were always kind of like a who knows. Right. <laughs> that's how Possum <laughs> Nixon was always kind of like, uh oh, that's a, that's the timer. Um, but we were. I mean, look, we were certainly uh, grateful to, to have that opportunity to make a record with Earl Mankey, who, who had done a lot of L.A. stuff. He'd done uh, 2020, Runaways, Sparks. He was The Quick. The Quick, of course. Uh, three O'Clock. Mm -hmm. Great. He's just amazing pedigree of, of bands he worked with. And so we had the opportunity, and, and even Interscope was like, hey, you should come meet with these guys. They just mixed the, the Soundgarden single. Come jam with them and maybe these guys did Nirvana and get this guy to mix it. And we were like, nope. We, did, we wanted what we felt was this pure thing. And I'm sure it, it, it was artistically satisfying. And who knows if it affected us one way or the other. That's uh, good. That's like our band. We never used hip mixers or stuff like I that. I can tell that when I listen to your music. And, uh, you know, we weren't promoted that well, but whatever. Yeah. It's okay. The records are still on. That's amazing. But, the, but you did your own thing and you stayed true to it. And that's why... I think you know, obviously your band was really respected and still still are to this day because you didn't. You, there's not a lot of different sounds going on with it. You stuck with what you're you're really good at. Can we talk about me some more? Well, I would, but Just the kidding, timer I know went the timer's off. off. We didn't so, even get into magic, but uh. Well, I don't know what really. You know what's going to happen is I'm going to dive into a little bit of a reading now, okay. and then you're going to come back for a Q and A. So this all happens super quick because like the timer thing. Because no Noel said he wanted to do twenty. 20 and 20 and that was 22 <laughs> just in case anyone's keeping track all right i'm gonna join matt so you're gonna join matt i'm gonna um i'm gonna just read a little bit in my book um something that uh i have grown to enjoy doing uh I, when i wrote this thing i had no idea how any of this was going to go and um i've done uh this is the sixth reading this is my sixth sort of like reading and and i just wanted to uh say before i Every time before I open this thing and look at it, and I look out, and there's there's people that I know and love, and people, some people that I don't know, and it just feels really great that um, something that I did has impacted and anyone to go. I'm gonna not do that tonight and go see this jerk do this. 
So thank you um, very much. I sincerely mean that in the most self-deprecating way. Uh, but we're going to... Um, so, so anyway, we're t I was talking about being a, a, a different kid. And uh, I'd say I, got, I had a really good start early on. Southern California, sun-drenched sun skies. There's smog alerts. Kind of the Brady Bunch world, we're like one tax bracket below. That's where the Zabruckis are living over there on California Street. And uh, this is what happened uh, right in second grade. So my early childhood can be summed up by the message that was printed on a pair of canvas sneakers from J.C. Penney. The ones I had were all worn out, and I needed a new pair before heading back to school to start second grade that fall. While browsing the, the kids' shoe section with my good mother, a certain pair caught my eye. They were different from the other boring ones on display. On these, the word run was printed over the rubber toe of one, while the other read home. The sides had cartoony baseball players all over them. Can I, can I get these? Well, I certainly, little fellow, but they'll have to last you all year, says my good mother, with a look that says, get them and you're stuck with them. The Zabreckis were a one pair of shoes per kind of school family. I like them a lot. <clears throat> I say trying them on real quick before dropping them in the shopping cart. Although they aren't too comfortable, they have a message that I can understand and follow. Run home. Some of you know where this is going. And that's what I do. Each day after the last bell rings at my school, Bret Hart Elementary School, I tear down the sunny sidewalks into the trees and past the houses as fast as my feet can go until I get to my front door on California Street. After catching my breath, I set my hand-me-down peanuts lunch pail onto the kitchen counter and retire to the backyard. I stretch out on a patch of grass and lie flat on my back next to my faithful brown mutt, Rusty, to watch the shapes of clouds turn from one object to another. It's my favorite part of the day. The next week, I'm sitting in class one morning, minding my own business and waiting for school to start when I feel someone nudging me with their foot. It's freckle-faced Andrew Anderson, and he's looking at me the way everyone looked at Jonathan Fisk in preschool the day he pooped his brand new tough skins. Hey, Robbie, you know you're wearing your shoes on the wrong feet, don't you? Andrew thinks he knows everything. I look down. He's got on the same shoes as me with baseball players and everything, but for some reason, he's wearing his on the, on the opposite feet. They're supposed to say, home run, not run home, Robbie. Day, he says in his stupid, snitchy voice. Hmm, I still hate him. And just for the record, I'm just off the, you know. Uh, yeah, okay. I take a second to think. Baseball players on the shoes... The message, I think, on the shoes is wrong. By the time I'm sure Andrew is right and that I'm wearing my shoes on the wrong feet and some other kids are pointing at them having a good laugh, I laugh, uh, excuse me, I freeze and my mouth goes dry. That's what I do when I get embarrassed. Go into a trance-like state and don't say anything. It's not because I don't want to. I can't. I watch the second hand go around on the clock, looking down, comparing the message on my shoes versus the shoes on Andrew's shoes until the school day is over. With zero desire to run, I walk home, feeling more like Charlie Brown than I ever did. Poor Robbie Zabrecki. Oh, I mean, yeah. Wah, wah. So that, you know, that was a woe for sure. But a lot of great things happened. And, and as, I, as I did turn and took some corners, as, as Ronnie and I had talked about in our 22 minutes, which reminds me, I'm just going to reset this timer really quick because uh, I don't want to, there we go. Um, I don't want to go over on this part too much. Um, so, yeah, so that all happened. I, I talked about these warts that I had. They, they, they vanished. They went back into my hands. It was, a it was a freaking miracle. I started seventh grade. I found music. Everything changed. By high school, I had become a popular 12th grader. I was like, girls liked me. I was, I loved meeting people. I was friends with everybody. Um, my music tastes were all over the place at this point, And I just became like, I was just happy to be accepted and be like a, a, a normal kid, whatever. Still partying way too much and a blackout drinker. Separate stories. But point is, I was feeling pretty good. Then I start this band, um, Possum Dixon. And uh, and like I, we talked about some of the, what was the, the Silver Lake world and some of the bands and that, what that was like coming up. Um, 
but we hit a we hit a plateau early on. I didn't know it was the height of where, where we were kind of going, but um, I'm gonna share what that was what that was like, right? And then we'll jump into a little music. Sound good, Matt? Okay. All that air guitar playing and rock stuff I dreamed about as a kid is happening in real life. And for the most part, it's glorious. The past six months have been a, have been a blur, appearing on dizzying number of stages across the United States. We've been introduced to the country through its nightclubs and theaters, playing to hundreds, sometimes thousands, of excited music fans each night. Hauling ourselves from one major city to the next, we're slowly building an audience of our own. Our live set is better than it's ever been, and we can easily sip through our first album, along with the cover of The Yardbirds, For Your Love, and The Dream Syndicate's Days of Wine and Roses, in under 35 minutes. Seeing the country through our band windshield by day and playing by, and, and playing by night, an anticipated future awaits us. In New York, <clears throat> we've made appearances on a new talk show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. That really dates this room. Uh, as well as MTV's 120 Minutes. These brushes with fame, where fans of the band are asking us to sign records, CDs, and magazine articles we've appeared in, are becoming regular. But more often than not, self-doubt kicks in and leaves me wondering if it's all too good to be true, and if it's just some good dream. All right. And it was kind of a, a, a very good dream. Uh, and now, instead of trying to uh, explain and describe music, uh, Matt Devine's going to come and we're going to play a few uh, songs for you. That be okay? Yeah? All right. And you can keep cheering for Matt Devine here. Uh, again, amazing guitar player, great friend, and extraordinaire. Yeah, let's do it. got this landlord and your church and your car crash work well my head aches on silver lake and you nerve me well I hate women who work I was a mailroom clerk why don't you stop me from making mistakes, but you nerve me. Well, the girls on glue, trickling on the rent checks, do. Oh, Susan, why don't you stop me from calling you? Late, but you burned me. And I think that it's going to be a long walk home, and it's going to be a long walk out to the car, and I think it's going to be a long walk to the car. It's going to be a long walk to your car. All right. Yeah. 
From across the room, he looks like one of seven superheroes, but I'm not sure just which one. From across the room, it could have been anyone. Well, she's a single white female that needs someone to talk to. Cigarettes, health food, Appetite complete. I don't care if you've got tickets for the game. No, the constellations won't escape us. Six more miles till I get home. Six more miles, six more miles. The car stops. You've got your six more miles till I get home. Six more miles, six more miles, and the car stops. You've got your six more miles till HBO. Six more miles, six more miles, and the car stops. You've got your six more miles till I get home. Six more miles, six more miles. The car stops. Well, she's into magic and the things that she tells him. There's columns and columns of love stories senseless. He turns to her. He's barely believing. He's barely believing all the shit that she's feeding him. In the front seat of her car. Oh, baby. Just keep it up, because you're not the first one who's been there before. No. They're free. Take them. Well, she's into magic. The things that she tells him were those columns and columns of love story senseless. And the ficus is in the room, and he turns to her. What's that tree doing in the middle of a bookstore? I never saw that before. In the front seat of her car. Oh, baby, just keep it up. Because you're not the first one who's been here before. And the, the car stops where the, the car stops where the, the car stops where her heart stops where the, where the car stops where the, the car stops where the, the car stops where the. Thank you. You might have to pay for those. I'm not sure. I don't really work here. You need to tune up, you're good. All right. One, two, three, four. If 17 was my magic number, I would give it to you in a box. And if 17 was the winning number, I would give it to you in a box. And I know what you're looking for. I know it can't be me. Because I'm the one who's leading you and staging this whole scene. And if 36 was the winning number, I would give it to you in a box. And if $36 would make you happy, I would give it to you in a box. And then the drugs kick in at the university. In the bathroom stall, I pace nervously. Yeah, where the, where the hell did I dream you up? Cause now I've got the reds. 
But I follow the ground with you. Fall to the ground. Why I fall to the ground with you? Fall to the ground. If seventeen was my magic number, I would give it to you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. So it's 1996, and it's a hot Baltimore afternoon. That's all I can tell you right now until I pick this up and get my glasses on. Yeah. We just loaded our equipment into a Baltimore nightclub. My cohorts and I decided we'll distract ourselves for a couple of hours before soundcheck by doing a little sightseeing in downtown Baltimore rather than kill time inside of our stuffy motel rooms. I'm fanatical about the early work of bizarro filmmaker John Waters and feel like paying a tribute to him by seeing the downtown areas he might have in his heyday there in the early 70s. Downtown Baltimore looks like some faded version of its 1950s self. I recognize some of the locations he used to film from scenes from Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, but the heat today is becoming unbearable. We're, me we're meandering through downtown to find ourselves on a main street with rows of mostly deserted, deserted small businesses. Storefront awnings provide mild refuge from the sun, but it's apparent why the streets are empty. It's simply too hot to be outside. The shops are the types you'd see in any city. A hardware store, a bakery, a post office, and a magic shop, all right? The dripping air conditioner is vibrating outside the magic shop. Now, the very word magic evokes images of Siegfried and Roy, white tigers, purple jumpsuits, girls with big hair and bronze bikini bodies stuffed in spandex and mustached men with mullets. It also recalls my embarrassing grade school experience when Ronald McDonald forcefully poured evaporated milk into my head and mortified me in front of my schoolmates. The whole idea, whatever might be inside, makes me a little uncomfortable, but I figure I can kill 20 minutes just to cool off, break away from the, the group, and head towards the head into the shop. So they, they go out, and I head into the shop. The storefront windows reads, Kenzo's Yogi Magic Mart. I push through the door and notice two things, a major drop in temperature, and a wiry man with a push-broom mustache standing alone behind a large glass counter. Everywhere I look are things you would expect to see in a magic shop. Brightly colored, feathered, flowered bouquets, small tables with stenciled rabbits, top hats, straight jackets, posters featuring images of Houdini, all of which I could have cared less about. I might as well be in the hardware store in the bakery after cooling off, I'm feeling a little guilty about loitering and not making some sort of nominal purchase. The idea pops into my head, and I approach the man who just might be Kenzo himself. Excuse me, do you have something that I might be able to perform at a nightclub by chance? Now, I I'm not a magician or anything, I ask, realizing how stupid I sound. I'm pretty sure he knows I'm not a wizard like he is. Then there's a long pause. He rolls up his sleeve, and he makes a, a small white handkerchief vanish. I can't believe what I've seen. I buy this piece, this small silk handkerchief, and the way, learn the method to vanish it, and I head back to the nightclub. It's about midnight, we're a few songs into our set when Celso, our guitar player, breaks a string. Ugh, another uncomfortable, sober encounter with a late night drunk audience. Then I remember the small piece of apparatus in my pocket, and in some whimsical instant, it occurs to me that what I bought at Kenzo's was a method for vanishing a small object and doesn't need to be the little colored silk handkerchief that Kenzo made vanish. Anybody have a wrapped condom? And this is how it went. You really have one? 
never regret that. Safety is no accident, young man. And here's what happened. This may be not so safe. And with some magical ease, the silk turned into the rubber. And there it went into the magician's, the new magician's fist, just like so. And I pushed it in there just like this in front of 200 disaffected indie rockers on a late Tuesday night. And there that handkerchief, that vanished just like that. And that was the beginning of my magic career. That started, I got the bug right there. Uh, as weird as that sound, that story is, somebody threw a condom up, I vanished it, and my life changed. Strange cure, number four. Came back to LA, and uh, tour's over, and um, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, I'm going to call her out right now. She's sitting right there. The pretty one, Tommy Jean Tuckeras. It's a brekkie, Incorporated. Uh, she's, she's managing a nightclub called Viper Room on Sunset Strip and has a pass to go to this place called the Magic Castle. And I'm, I'm, had become, I just recently become sober. I made a lot of new choices and decisions in my life that were suddenly uh, uh, following the rules of society, let's just say. And going to this place seemed like a great idea. And we walked in there, and my life changed once again. Seeing the turn of the century lithographs and these caricatures and this whole other world that was very much like what music was to me as a teenager. Magic was at 25 or 27 or something. Uh, and that really changed everything for me. I had another conceit that I could reinvent myself as a magician. And there it started. Uh, every hipster in Silver Lake thought I was an idiot, a fool, a moron, a creep, a weirdo, you know, that's so dumb. Um, <laughs> musicians are cool, I mean, I don't know, it's a long, it's a weird thing. Uh, but I did it, I, I, it was a burning desire to do it, and um, I let go of one dream in music, and I picked up another one in, in magic. So that's kind of where my book ends, um, but I would like to read a little um, kind of wrap-up page if I can. So over those 10 years, looking back on the music career, that is, um, we grew up, and by we I'm talking about my best friends that I got to play in a band with, um, Celso Chavez, who's no longer here, and a couple of my best friends that I went to, to grade and high school with. Um, over those 10 years, we grew up from being those wide-eyed kids fresh out of high school, biding time at community college, looking for some bigger adventure. We built our band from a beautiful friendship and wrote about the experiences that stem from our adventures, which built a bond some bands can only dream about. Our love for each other conquered life's annoying pains that became those early gigs, when we still lived under our parents' roofs and music was our gateway to freedom, looking for something more than going to college and ending up handcuffed to a desk, devolving under dimmed fluorescent office light. Inventing a dream and going for it the way we did. Hitting our own jackpot by playing our hearts out to legions of kids who sang along with our songs. And later, feeling the sounds from our instruments evaporating into empty clubs. Those unforgettable memories of being young, carefree, and reckless aren't going anywhere. They're mine to keep. If nothing else, the memories of the band Salad Days are my consolation prize. But the real prize is walking away from something that felt like your life's purpose and knowing that there's something ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to welcome back Ronnie Barnett. Just for the record, we're at one minute and 23 seconds under time. So, you see? Playing by the rules now, Chris. So we have one minute and 23 seconds? of Extra. We got oh, extra. extra. We have okay. 23 okay. minutes now. We have, we have a, yeah.
What about the music? Are you still signed to Interscope, by the way? Let's, let's have a new record. I heard our, I heard our, rec I heard our, um, our masters got burned in a fire at Universal or something. Ah. So I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Uh, no, I, I have decided to uh, narrow the focus of, of performing, which I still love to do, but I work uh, as an actor in TV and film, and I perform magic, and I'm quite happy doing those. I love the joy of playing live music as an ephemeral thing where you know, I can use an AM radio instead of a guitar solo or bells that I use in seances at the Magic Castle as a, as a lead instrument or things that I have laying around the house, found objects. So I love that I'm able to, at this point, um, like kind of pull in my love of stuff that's maybe a little more avant-garde and just throw it in the mix and not feel like it has to be recorded, it has to be Art, there needs to be artwork, or there needs to be a, you know, got to go do a tour, you got to go do an interview. You got like I don't have, none of that exists, um, and I did it for ten years. So better or worse, and there was a lot of worse because I look back on my music career as um, you know definitely some success, but a lot of failure. I screwed up, you know, because I was out of my mind a, a lot. In some very there were some very crucial moments that I blew pretty hard, um, but I'm not doing that now. Now I you know. Uh, 24, out, 24 years uh, being sober and kind of looking at the world straight on. I, I want to, now I, I want to be successful. I think back then I was fighting it in ways that was, it was idiotic. It was, it was just stupid. Yeah, we didn't really get into it, but there's a lot of dark stuff in the book that uh, Rob went through. And uh, actually it's a, you came out the other side and look at you now. It's amazing. Look at me now. Look at him now. Robbie Zabrecki from Burbank, California. Yep. He made it. He made playing it the bells. It. Playing the bells, yeah. <laughs> I, and the thing is, like, I know how weird it is. Like, you go, okay, this guy was whatever. He's Silver Lake Rock Band, fine. But the musician, actor, it's, like, it's just a bunch of weird stuff that comes at you. Like, for someone who doesn't know who I am, I'm sure they probably just go, that, that just seems like a mess of a person. Because uh, it's just so, there's, there's a lot of layers and strange, like, um, it doesn't all fit together like most. You look at most people. Go, oh, he was a he was an actor. He was in a band. But in my case, there's it's you know, it's weird. I don't know. Strange cures, Rob. Strange cures. Yeah. All right, we're gonna take some uh, questions. Anybody? Uh... Yes. Yeah, so um, the question is, yeah, did, did I think when I was writing it that I was, everyone was going to come back and go, and I have to be accountable for all the facts that you throw in there? And the, the answer is not really. At first, I just, I go, because I had this burning desire to do it, and I'm like, I have unusual stories, I have a weird, like I, I was haunted in my own way for a long time, and I wanted to push, I wanted to get kind of release that into the world so I could move on personally, so I can hopefully live the next, um, another round another 40 years to have other adventures that I will not write about. I've no desire to ever do this again. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the answer is, yeah, I was aware of it in, on some level, but mostly I was like, people have, people come at you, you write a memoir and it's amazing how people will come at you and you, you're surprised by maybe some things that you got right and some things that you got wrong. And um, you know, so it comes with its its trouble. Yeah. John Roker. You have a question or a statement? <laughs> Do you want a mic? You were at Plasmatics at Perkins Palace? Oh my god. <laughs> Whoa. And so it's a weird thing like Oh my god. Amazing.
<laughs> I, I barely remember it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody from Lifter in the house? Am I allowed to go back to Disneyland? Yeah. So the answer is yes. I've been back to. So with all that, the, <laughs> let me just recap. It's amazing that our paths did cross there, and that we. Are, uh, it makes perfect sense for friends. Amazing. But, Yes. Yeah. Music was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. I didn't know what a holiday in Cambodia was. I just liked the way the lyrics went. Yeah, sounded cool. I mean, you know. But anyway, um, uh, are you supposed to say Mongoloid anymore? But, but there was a question. But the, you you ended with a question. Can I go back to Disneyland? Okay. The question. So and then you made a jump. So it was like a, 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 a there was like a paragraph break <laughs> and then the question. Uh, so I got arrested at Disneyland in 1985 for what? Uh, youthful indiscretion. Um, I would say um, I, I relieved myself while in line for Space Mountain with my two best friends. <laughs> and I thought it'd be funny if I pulled my pants all the way down to my ankles and spun around in circles. Like, you know, like, you know, little kids pull their pants down, like, it looks funny. And I was spinning around and that didn't uh, wouldn't be any popular. It was really f crowded Friday nights with families being terrified by this. And then that was followed by waiting to get on the front car. Man, those kids are scarred. Yeah. <laughs> there were some scarred kids from them. Yeah. And so we get to the front and I was like, I'm going to, I didn't put my legs down all the way. So the bar was, I was able to squirrel out of the, the car, the train. And I crawled on the front of the Space Mountain yeah, and I and I held on for my life, which seemed like a really fun idea because I was inebriated until that first drop, and I was like, "Oh, this is a very bad idea." <laughs> and my friend Mike Keys, who was the the punk rock James Dean of Burbank, God bless his soul, he was an amazing fellow. He just grabbed me. I was like, "Hold on, Robbie, we're going in!" <laughs> and then like this like love lock of like we were just locked like two cats, like you know, being held over a pool, you know, and we were just it was like this, and every muscle just attached you know my toes like curling into the fiberglass practically of that ride and I don't know if you know this but they have cameras at Disneyland <laughs> so when the train pulled into the station I was yanked out of the car by two very large security guards and and promptly thrown into a Disneyland jail uh, which isn't much different from other jail there's bars and it's you know it's it's pretty much there and uh and they detained me and took, there's photo, they took photos. I would love to see the photos. But the thing is, I went with Matt recently and, and I went with his, um, his wife and, and son Desmond. We had a great time and we went on Space Mountain and they did not stop me. So I am allowed, long answer, I am allowed back at Disneyland. Thank you. And that's a chapter in the book, just so you know, just so you know. Um, yeah, okay. Yet another near death uh, experience in the book, Strange Cares. Go ahead, Keith. I'm ready to kill you as a cowboy in Michael's Western. Yeah, you're going down. We're going to do it. Yeah, we're, we're doing it. On Vermont, with a stampede of horses. In, what about in Vermont? All right. There's the director. Right I don't know what they're talking about either, but... Uh. It's our upcoming, it's upcoming Western, the, the postmodern Western, where Keith and I are going to be um, battling each other. You'll see. It's coming up. Nice plug, Keith. Sword fight. <laughs>
Now, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, you never know. No one wants that. Anybody else? Nothing? I'm going to say one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was self-deprecating. It was so weird because I was reading the book again on Sunday. Or, yeah, and they had like this, they blocked off Hollywood Boulevard as one does. You know, so they had people bike around and all that stuff. So reading the book, listening to Bill Blast, and I'm like reading this thing, and I'm, and I'm going, it's a true story about when you play Spaceland with the Foo Fighters in bed. And you're saying how shitty the show was. I go, that show is fucking great. What's wrong? And I stopped for a second. Weird. It, you know what, John? You were so supportive. It, we were terrible. We were terrible. There are witnesses. You, I, I love you so much. That's why we're friends because he's encouraging me. John, we had no right being on that stage. So one of our, so one of the early shows in Magic, we were invited to play at the Roxy for a, a Ringling Sisters benefit. It's a yearly benefit, and all, they always had the best bands. And John Doe and Xene are doing something, and the Dream Syndicate, and it's all these the best of like the LA cream of the crop. And somehow Pleasant, who was the coordinator, said, "Well, we're going to have a Magic show this year, and we don't know any magicians, so you and your wife can, you and Tommy, come in and do the thing." And it was such a disaster, and we were so bad, and our. Essay, where's Essay? Yeah, Essay, you, you, Essay, you used to say how terrible we were at Magic, and you're like, oh, and then you got good. You're like, you used to be so bad. You can't disagree, thank God. And you know what? It was punk, look, it was, it was punk in its ethos in that we thought, we had the conceit that we could do this thing, and we, we looked kind of cool, but... Well, technically... It was, we were like the shags, <laughs> as, as, as magicians. What is that? I was. She was great. But anyway, but the point, you know what? That's neither here nor there because I, when I did reinvent myself as a magician, I went, you know what? I want to be good at this. I'm not getting hot. I'm, there's no chemicals. There's no drinking. It's like, I'm going to do this. And so I fell in love with the rehearsal process and the idea of like writing, producing, directing, and acting. And it was a whole thing where I was able to... I made a career, you know, sort of a career out of it. And um, that came from just a lot of hard work, you know. I know. I'm pretty, pretty lucky. Yeah, I know. Pretty ballsy to do magic show at a music show, by the way. Why? I don't know why we thought we like, I'm like, Tommy, we're going to go do the thing with these, you know, Xene and John and, uh, Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Bond, all these like luminaries, essay, and she's like, "What? No, like well, this just seemed like." I mean, she we agreed to do it, but it was a pretty crazy. Like, you know, there's a few hundred people. It's a packed house, and like, we just we had we were playing. Um, we had Nina Rota music. We we're the Italian film composer. That was our music, and the idea of the show was cool, but the execution of the magic was like D F level. And I know this because there's magicians, there's a couple that saw us back then, like, oh, yeah, you guys were really bad. <laughs> and, you know, and I can, like, frankly, like, just, I, I want to, you know, I like to know where I stand with people. And I, I think that audience kind of told us that we were pretty crummy. So, yeah. But you look good. But, we but the stills look great. Yeah. <laughs> just don't watch any video. All right. I think that's it. Where's one in the oh, back? Oh, one more. I'm sorry, what, what was the question, though? Oh, yeah. So the transition, so yeah, like getting into magic, you go, oh, well, you, so what does that mean? Like you're a magician now. Well, for, for a lot of, for some people, me, uh, it was hiding behind a character and creating a persona that I could, wouldn't have to like be this person, Rob Zabrecki, performing magic, because that wasn't really going to happen. I don't think I could have done that. But, and I went, oh, if I play like a, and this is a lot of 
uh, brainstorming with Tommy, if, I, if we play like a Herman Munster thing where I'm this weird guy, but I think all of you are batshit crazy. This might just work. And I kind of used my you know, funeral director look that I naturally, my gaunt visage, as has been said, uh, you know, and, like, and kind of played up that almost, I'm the outsider, but I think you're all the outsider. That philosophy clicked, and I thought, okay, I can do this as a character because I'm, I'm still hiding behind something. When I was playing in a band, I was hiding by something because I had my best friends in the band are all, well, you know, you're in a band, you're, you're, a, you're a little tribe, you're a little, a little team, you're a pack. And the idea of me just standing there alone um, was pretty terrifying, and still is uh, to, to a degree, but that developed over, you know, um, it's still developing, so 20 years in the, in the works uh, of development, and it's probably you know, one of my greatest achievements because it's, it's kept me out of day, a day job. And uh, I've got to travel to places like, you know, Tokyo and Australia and all over Europe. And I go to festivals and conventions just because people want that. And, they, and I talk about it now. I've, I'm able to articulate that creative process and I can break it down into like simple, it's apples, it's, it's, it's really can be described in a, in, in pretty simple language. Um, and I lecture a lot for magicians and I, spend a lot of time trying to help people that are finding their voice in that. And really, I, and it always draws back to a, to a punk ethos. Follow, follow your, your, your heart. You don't, don't listen to too many people. Add up, take all the things that you really love and put it into something. And if you do that, you're, you know, you're bound to have at least feel a, a personal you know, victory. There's a, a story about your character, which is one of my favorite stories. We'll end on this. When, when the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite came to see you, do you remember the story? I probably remember it more better than Rob. I don't remember. Uh, the guy, what's his name, John Heater? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he came to see, you want to take it? Or, he I'm came, so he came to see Rob, and um, they met afterwards, and um, John Heater was like, I'm a little disappointed you're not you know, like your character in real life. And Rob's thinking, I'm kind of disappointed. You're not like your fucking character. <laughs> Yeah, so, little Hollywood, yeah, behind yep. the scenes there in Hollywood, yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right, Rob Zabrecki, Strange right, Cures. Thank you all for coming, yeah. Matt Devine. And thank you to Skylight for hosting Rothko Press, for putting out my book, and all of you guys for spending your Tuesday evening in Los Feliz and coming out to see live performance. Thank you all for coming. Really, thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.